I'm gonna show y'all a day in the life of a real nigga. Why yo, why yo, why yo? You acting wild and you talking all loud, but you ain't saying nothing to me. You want it all, but don't wanna work to get it. I'ma tell you, ain't nothing for free. The same old ain't never brand new. Find something else better to do. Jack and you copycats down motherfuckers I'm talking to Word you Get up, your time is over Why oh, why oh, why oh Get up, get out, it's over Why oh, why oh, why oh Time's up, get out, it's over Why oh, why oh, why oh Believe in dreamers, they sleeping on the current cultural move. We ain't buying a dumb down, we ain't stupid. Your news fake, and who's great? Ain't whoever main in the stream. The smoke in the mirror ain't the way that it seen. That's the lean and the molly and the perks in the Zan. Got them gone now, they don't give a fuck over damn. It's a scam propaganda, make it look like it's not the man. I got the plan to make us all mindless ass thrones. I'ma shine a light from my soul just in case. If you're lost and your ass might find your way home, yeah, this for everybody who knows the time. For frontin' ass whack rapping is over. This ain't for the dough. Why oh why oh why oh? You actin' wild and you talkin' all loud, but you ain't sayin' nothing to me. You want it all, but don't wanna work to get it. I'ma tell you, ain't nothing for free. The same old ain't never brand new. Find something else better to do. You fake Jack and you copycats down, motherfuckers. I'm talkin' to you. Word up, your time is over. Why oh why oh why oh Get up get out it's over Why oh why oh why oh Time's up get out it's over Why oh why oh why oh They swarm like some damn piranhas They grills all up in your face like it's Benny Hines Then watch the real story off for some petty drama So you don't see the real issue that our forefathers left us messed up Fighting ourselves for more dollars The way they do my life, it makes me wanna holler And the window I keep on missing keeps on getting smaller Now run like a good nigga and you will get sponsored Play the slave hood nigga, then boycott the Oscars Then try to play the race car, but play the imposter Like you in a race car trying to blend in with some marathoners That's a bunch of clowns piling out of time Tiny whip instead of breaking bread, they snatching crumbs that they finally get. The problem is, you ain't never felt no pain before, you soft. It's a soft generation. You acting wild and you talking all loud, but you ain't saying nothing to me. You want it all, but don't wanna work to get it. I'ma tell you, ain't nothing for free. The same old ain't never brand new, find something else better to do. You fake Jack and you copycats down, motherfucker.
fuck is I'm talking to Word you? up, your time is over. Yo. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the episode of RNS Radio. My name is Rain Omega. I am your host, and I'm here with my homeboy live and direct from the city of Philly, which is also its own planet. Uh, Satorio, what's good with you, baby? Well, I'm chilling, man. Yes, it is its own planet. Uh, it, it, it really is a whole nother world out here, man. I'm hanging in, bro. How you feeling? Man, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah, man. If y'all don't know about Philly, man, this brother be posting some videos and some clips and stuff on his Instagram. It is the craziest shit you've ever seen if you're not from Philly. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, all, it's also regular to me now. Yeah, see, you are, you're adapted. You're you're immersed in the lifestyle, you know what I mean? So it's like seeing a nigga riding his bike, standing on the back of the bicycle seat, weaving in and out of traffic at 45 miles an hour is just natural. It's normal. Yeah, yeah that's, th that's Thursday. That's a, that's a <laughs> sunny Thursday. <laughs> um, I forgot to mention uh, in the intro that you are a stand-up comedian, so it's going to be some funny stuff going on. Um, but I've known you for a long time, and um, – yeah, man, I'm glad that you uh, took the opportunity to kind of save my ass today. I, I didn't come in with a game plan, and I was like, shit, I've been meaning to talk to you for a minute. And I was like, fingers crossed. <laughs> hey, man, you know what? It's a good thing about you. Threw, uh, you did an Eli Manning Hail Mary right there. It worked out. Yeah, man, just threw it up, man, and, and you snagged it down for the win. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's let's jump into it, man. Um, Let's start uh, way – I always like to go way, way back because although, like, your fan base and your audience might be um, familiar with you, I'm sure there's going to be at least a handful of people that listen to this who might not know. Um, yeah. So let's go back to uh, where are you from, and then we'll, we'll move up the ladder from there, like talk about, you know, being a B-boy, yeah. uh, excuse me, hip-hop, moving to Philly, comedy, all that. But let's start at, uh, at the beginning. Let's go back. At the beginning, I am from Columbus, Ohio. Home. So, yeah, so I'm from Columbus, Ohio, up top, super Midwest, and breaking in hip-hop. Hip-hop, you know, and, and b-boying probably found me in my teenage years. Um, so we're talking about, like, the late 90s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, 99. Um, you know, and, of course, I'm a kid. I was doing athletics, so I was kind of not really – I wasn't fully focused in on it, you know, sort of playing and doing other stuff and everything. And then it was sort of later on, like 2000, 2001, uh, that I really started to give it some some effort. And, okay. you know, within that, you know, you go to the practice spot and you're whack and everyone lets you know that you're whack. And they said, here, I'm going to show you this one thing, go into the corner for two hours and practice it and be whack over there. Um, don't come over here because then your whackness might bleed off onto us and we don't want that. So <laughs> treated that shit like they treated when you were whack, they treated you like you were a car that had no that the battery was dead. They could they couldn't give you a jump. Um so basically working up from there, man, and just sort of going to all the small jams. Uh, you know, Columbus at that time, if we're talking like two thousand and two thousand and two to two thousand and four, we didn't really have too many jams at that point in Columbus. So a lot of times, if you wanted to get busy, you had to go to Cleveland, you had to go to Akron, or you had to go to Cincy. Um, mm. It was it was interesting. That's where I met you, and uh, that's where I met you. That's where I met you, you and your and your cousin Yum, I believe. Yeah. And um, and it was interesting then because it's so like when I watched Breaking Now, it was so much different, man. Because there was beef in small ass Ohio, you know, like 
every part of Ohio was trying to be the best city in Ohio. Like that was a big deal. So it was like, you know, since he was kind of on the outskirts, Columbus was trying to catch up to, to Akron and, and, uh, and Cleveland. And, and, you know, I believe there's some people in Toledo, if I'm not mistaken, but I do remember coming up in that environment and you trying so hard to get good because everyone else around you was kind of already established. You know, you were established. Yum was established. Uh, Herbie was established. Nefty, you know, um, uh, and there were all these beefs, you know, like and and each scene and each city had their own distinctive style, which it was something that really I didn't even understand that that's what that that was something that was so special about breaking back then is that Columbus looked way different than Akron. Akron looked way different than Cleveland and nobody looked alike. Uh, but you could always tell where a dancer was from based on how they danced. So if they had like a lot of crazy tricks and crazy moves, that's a Cincy breaker. You know, if they could really, really dance and, and, and their foundation was on point, that's an Akron dancer. And if they had sort of like a weird amalgamation of the, the two, that was like a couple Cleveland breakers. But no one was really super duper extra complete, but everyone was sort of getting there. So I just remember coming up in that time period and it was a lot of beef. It was a lot of battling and, and, you know, people were busting their ass for a hundred dollar cash prize, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, um, I'm getting some reverb. Can you hear that too? Uh, slightly. Okay. Hopefully it's not too bad on the playback, but, um, for me and my, like, you know, cause it was like, and it's funny because at the time, it felt like there was like, it was such a long time period, but in reality, I started in 98, you know what I mean? So it was like, it was only two or three years before I met you guys, you know what I mean? So I, but it, to me, it felt like I had been breaking for like ever. Yep. And then, you know what I mean? Then y'all pull up and I'm like, who is these new cats, man? I'm, right, not, I'm right. not, you know what I'm saying? And then, and um, yeah, we used to really, I mean, I talked to Vix last week and uh, we were talking about it. We were, we were going down memory lane, and I was like, man, but in my mind, it's such a huge chunk of time, but it really wasn't that yeah. big of a time yeah. frame. Well, the time frame was actually very, very – it was very, very small. The window, and especially when we talk about how, how active we were, it was it, – it feels like it was forever, but, man, it was, it was kind of like a bolt of lightning, and then that was kind of it. You know what I'm saying? Like we had our years in. But wasn't no, there wasn't really anybody that was seeing 10 years of active dance competition like with, with some real hunger and, and fervor because especially back then, it, it wasn't what it is now. So, you know, the, not so much that like, oh, you need it. Like people were, life was happening. People were graduating school or, or getting married or getting some, or getting pregnant, you know, like, or you had already blown through so much of your money from breaking. You were like, I don't want to be broke no more. You know, what I'm <laughs> like I think that was it for us. I remember, goodness, 2006 through 2008, just going all around the country and, and for competitions when I could, and just going broke, like putting putting everything on the credit. And it just got to a point where it's like I can't do this shit no more. <laughs> like it just can't. You know, here you are in your early 20s, stressed. You know about about these uh these bills that were hotels and flights and you know you made all these dope connections and it made you a better dancer but you also just learned how to be really poor and, yeah you know and then after a while you know 
your family's looking at you like, nigga, this shit ain't cool. And you're like, yes, it's kind of whack, huh? <laughs> you know, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's funny that you uh, you mentioned family because I wanted to take a second to talk about that. Um, for those of y'all who uh, don't know, you know, I mean, you're a first generation Niger. Your parents are from Nigeria, right? If I'm not mistaken. That is correct. So let's talk about like the uh, the immigration, not like how they came over here, but like how people who are immigrants view frivolous shit like that like you growing up and your parents are probably looking at you like bro like are you going to get a real job or what was that like yo yeah and so yeah it was basically like my mom didn't understand it until she saw a check so it's like when i started doing corporate gigs and started doing some tours and stuff like that that's when it came sort of a, a became a thing to her that was worth uh respecting as a means at, like worth respecting in, insofar as why is this taking up so much of your time? You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, but before that, no, it was very much like, yo, those, those grades better be right though. You know, like you gotta, you gotta go, you have to have all these experiences. I think on the one hand, my mom really liked it because uh, she knew where I was and I wasn't really going to get into any type of trouble. So the, the idea of trouble wasn't even on my brain. I just wanted to become a better dancer. You know what I'm saying? I just want to become a better dancer to travel and to have people want to have confidence in battling with me. Or if they were battling against me, they knew they had to really bring their A game. So I think she understood the, the benefit in that. But yeah, when you're West African and Nigerian, especially, it's like, man, it's about these books. It's about going to college. It's about going and getting you a master's degree and getting a good job. So um, it was it was definitely viewed as it definitely made like made me stand out. And I think my mother had a uh, definite respect for that. However, she also did not see it as a, as a real long-term way to make a living, um, which for a time, you know, I, I proved her wrong, but then, you know, I got injured and had to have surgery and, and then she wound up being right. So, you know, mm. that's, yeah. uh, that's the reality for a lot of people. Like, for me, I didn't even, um, I didn't even know that it was possible to make a living from dancing until I moved to Las Vegas. Um, so I moved right. in 2004 and I, you know, and I clicked up like Guillaume and AT and the Battleborn and stuff like that. And they were already, you know, cause they come from classically trained. Well, Guillaume and AT and do, they come from classically trained dance. Like their mother and their father are both performers. They, they've been in Vegas shows since they were teenagers. So wow. like they already, and you know, they did, they had, they did the LA thing, the commercials, yeah. the, you know, all that stuff. Um, but to me, like, it was like, for my experience was like how you described it. We get in the car, we drive to Detroit, six yep. hour drive with $40 yep. between everybody. Like, yep. you know, so, and so I, I moved here at 24. And by the time I was 25, I was like, I was, I was exactly where you said, I was like, you know what, this being broke shit, nigga, this is not, this is, I want money and yeah. I can dance when I'm not making money. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It becomes that thing, man, especially that time period, especially in the Midwest. A lot of really exceptional dancers back then. Yeah, life just happened. And it sort of took you out the game. Like, I remember I tore my lateral meniscus at, like, 22 and danced on it for basically almost two years. And I because I didn't know what was happening. But everybody told me that I was fine. All the physical therapists, every director that I worked with, they said that you're fine. You're good to go. Funny enough, all of them were white. But um, by the time <laughs> they were all white. But finally, my mom was like, you have to get this checked. And by the time I got a check, yeah, my, my knee was all jacked up. 
And the surgeon was like, hey, man, I will, if I can, I'll try to repair this. But if I can't, I got to remove about 40% of your lateral meniscus. And, you know, you're, you can, you may be able to dance after this, but with the amount of frequency that you're dancing with currently, no, nah, that's got to stop. Or within five years, we're going to be talking about knee replacement, which was, which was ill because that's like, I got the surgery, they couldn't repair it. So they had to, you know, do the snip snip. And I was back, I was back in like a month or two, but it was also like, oh shit, like me dancing this frequently, doing all these shows back to back to back, that's done. Um, and it, 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 it was interesting in that it was a bummer, but it, it was actually kind of a relief because I realized that, especially in the Midwest, if you were going to work with companies and do things, you would get paid to dance, but you were kind of doing their stuff. You were doing a lot of shit that you wouldn't be doing otherwise. Mm. Uh, that literally was of no interest. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're, you're at the Longenberger basket weaving convention at the nationwide arena in Columbus, Ohio, breaking, you know, in front of like these, these old white women in their, and their, and their young daughters, you know, and you're, and it's cool. Like you're the entertainment and everything, but this is not, no one's learning anything here. They're just watching some boys do some flips and some tricks and some spins, you know, and, and then you've got to do the type of choreography they want you to do. Um, so it was kind of a relief in that it's, I, I, I didn't want to continue to injure myself doing other people's stuff for a paycheck at that time. But uh, it definitely caused like a weird identity crisis because I thought, I thought that I would be doing that for much longer. I see what you mean, yeah. And especially like, even though the time frame that we're talking about is, uh, you know, five, six years, like for me, I mean, I, I, I injured my ankle in 2017, but that's, I had stopped dancing well before then, you know? So right. like, um, to me, when I, you know, like, I look back and I was like, how much I love breaking, uh, but it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't your, like, you got it's injured at a point where you could kind of redirect your life yep. and yep. and still enjoy the culture yep. but like you know companies they try to pimp dancers they I mean, i'm sure they still oh, do now but even back then like i did a couple corporate gigs here like i did like a honda convention the magic convention a couple times and it's like yeah dance nigga for 9 hours yes. with one break yep. <laughs> Hella ciphering, like yeah, and you are literally being exploited on such a level, and but you're living the dream. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what they because you're, you're you're technically doing something that you shouldn't be able to do. So initially, it's like you're kind of happy to be there, but it got to a point after a while. I'm like, this is garbage. Like this is you're I'm actively being exploited. I don't think I'm being paid enough at this point. It takes me too long to get my money. Don't like that. Um, you know, and meanwhile, you're giving them your body, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, it, it definitely became a thing where I was just like, man, if I'm a dance, I'm a dance for me and no one else, because it had become the, the point where it, the dancing had literally become a job, which I never thought would happen, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that, uh, it was good that you came to the realization when you did, because I think a lot of people follow that delusion into permanent injury in the sense that like, um, I mean, I know you had surgery and so that kind of snapped you out of it, but for a lot of people, like they beat them by, like 
you know, like you say, you're giving up your body. So yeah. after years and years of maybe I do a, you know, and I, you could, you get some decent checks. You might get like a thousand dollars or yeah. more for a gig, but it's yeah. like, I'm, you know what I mean? Like that's, there's no insurance. There's no like retirement IRAs or 401ks. So that's just a thousand flat ass dollars yeah. that you get to make your life with until the next gig pops up. Pops yep. up. Yeah. And, and it's super hard. I mean, yeah, you and I both know a slew of, when I tell you some of the illest dancers, especially from the Midwest, I mean, people really forget, like we had, we did for a time period have some real killers coming out of there. You know, you had a lot of killers in phase two, you know, we had a lot of really, really talented breakers as a whole. And a lot of them wouldn't even think to get on the floor now because they're just, yeah, they're jacked up. You know, I know one who's a, who's an ill DJ and he had to stop DJ. He had to start really getting into DJing because he tore his knee up so much and he had no health insurance. You know what I'm saying? So the mere idea of getting surgery was just impossible. So like he had to sort of redirect. I remember when I got my surgery, I had graduated by that point from college. So I had to prove to them that I got injured while I was a student so that I could be on uh, OSU's health insurance because that health insurance basically took care of everything. But had it not been for me being able to prove when I got injured, to prove I got injured on their campus, I wouldn't have had, I might not have even been able to get the actual surgery. Um, and yeah, that that was really an interesting wake-up call to me. Because while you're in there, the, the, the surgeon is telling you like a day before the surgery, they're talking to you about failure ratios and failure percentages. And I'm like, what you mean? You said you was going to cut out this thing and then I'll be good to go. And he was like, yeah, but the knee could totally break down regardless. <laughs> you know, it's like it can all actually fall apart. And I'm like, nigga, that's new. You didn't say that initially. That's new, <laughs> like, that's new information. You can't just be spraying that on people like this. But it, it, it did cause a thing where it's like, yo, like, yeah, I got to figure something out in, in a hurry. Yeah. And I mean, I think. I mean, it's opportune. You know, I know a couple people that I could say had that realization around before it was too late. Like even Manny, um, you know, he uh, I remember he just didn't like being in pain. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we, he would do like windmills and he would do babies and he would get scars on his shoulder. And he was like, I'm about to just say fuck it and start. DJing. And, you know, now he's a he's a world class DJ, which is dope. But, you know, like I know how much he loved to dance, too. But it's 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 a reality that a lot of people are not confronted with it's like concussions and football type shit. Like they don't tell you about concussions when you sign in that contract. And then when you can't remember what your middle name is, they're like, Oh yeah. Um, there may be some residual. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy those, yeah. Enjoy those millions of dollars where you, while you don't know what street you live on, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and think about that within dance. And I, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think people really pain for a dancer is such a, a way of life. And at some point it does get whack. Like it just, it stops being cool. Like my, you know, my homie Tim lives out in Vegas. Uh, where you at? And you know, Tim was a really, really dope dancer, you know, uh, Renshaw's brother, really ill dancer, but his back was just destroyed. And he's like, I love the dance as much as I ever did, but I'm tired of the pain because the pain gets to be such a point that even though you're a dancer and even though we have higher thresholds of pain, it gets a little old because you're, you have to deal with that for the rest of your life. Like even when I get down now, I'm not, I'm not going to, to, to practice to break for two hours. I'm in there for 45 to an hour to hit what I got to hit and I'm going home and I'm not going there every single night. I'm there once, maybe twice a week, mostly once. 
And that's mostly to hang, kick it, dance, and just be a part of that. But it's like, yeah, I'm not going to give physically. I know it's like I can't, I can't practice for four hours no more. I actually, actually physically can't do that. I'll hurt myself. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you have to find those means to be like, yo, when is enough enough? When is enough, you know, enough? And I think for a lot of us, we either figure it out pretty quickly or we figure it out way later, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I think and that's kind of the the philosophy behind why I'm at where I'm at, like doing this as a podcast and, um, you know, talking to people that I've known through hip hop and stuff and, and talking to, you know, sharing their stories in life is because like, I got to the point where, hey, I wasn't, I, it's not, it, when I had ankle surgery, yeah. I was 37. So it was like, all right, if I couldn't dance really before, I'm definitely not about to start training and dancing now with right. metal in my leg. So I was right. like, but I love hip hop. And, you know, how can I continue to be uh, a part of the culture and contribute to the culture? I was like, well, you know, I mean, I know a lot of talented, dope people who have gone on to do other things in a, in a major way. So I can give you know, share stories with people. So I'm happy to be able to do it. But like you say, man, like, and this is something that, um, you know, um, that people don't really focus on too. Like there's no precedent in hip hop for a lot of these things. Right. Like a lot of these things, like they're about to do the Olympics. I talked to Mr. Freeze a couple of weeks ago and they're working on the plan for the 2024 Olympics. Yeah. And you know, like the monsters and the Red Bulls and the world, you know, like there's no precedent. Like Monster sponsors B-Boys and they sponsor street skaters. Yep. And the street skaters get paid $250,000 per win in their street skating competition. The Monster B-Boys, I don't know how much they get paid. Shout out to the cats that sponsored. Uh, but like, I know it's not that much for winning yeah. the jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because everything now that's happening or that was happening before everything got shut down was unprecedented acts. You know, it was it was definitely entering an era. Yeah, because there's no yeah, there's there was no precedent for any of this stuff. It's all happening for the first time. And breakers still are fighting for the dollar, even with the sponsorship, which I'm sure did them a lot of good because it seems like Monster and Red Bull were really about sponsoring these cats and giving them a living in a, in a way to make money, which is beautiful. You know, but it's like you can't tell me a street skater is worth more than a world class B-boy. You just can't you, or a B-girl. You just can't tell me. You can't tell me that's the truth uh, on, a, on, a, on a pure aesthetic and artistic level. Um, you know what I'm saying? Maybe they just had, maybe the street skaters have more popularity, which they probably do. Um, but it's like, you know, that dance supersedes any, that, that's, that's the rawest dance and possibly the rawest art form that there is, you know? So it's like, yeah, pay, these guys were happy to get paid, but it's like, yeah, definitely there needs to be more, happening and everything was on the cusp of happening which was exciting to watch but also really terrifying at the same time because as a dancer the first thing you worry about once you dance for so long is are they going to exploit these people yeah you know or how are they going to exploit them rather and and for a lot of people too I was talking to uh, when I was talking to Freeze I was talking about the same thing like for a lot of cats like yourself myself people older than us you know, like hip hop. OK, so there's two there's two bullets, two bullet points to this. The first bullet point is that hip hop uh, is notoriously exclusive. Fuck y'all. You don't do hip hop. We're not fucking with y'all type thing. Um, and that's that stopped a lot of money over the decades because I don't want you know, it's like. And so then there's that. And then also, um, like you said, for like when we get past a certain point in terms of shelf life, like I'm not going to be actively like Ken Swift just got signed to a monster, which is dope in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Dope to me. 
but they didn't sign him so he could break. They signed yeah. him for like figurehead. And that's there's there needs to be more slots like that. Yeah. But there's a weird like gray area. Like when people start getting money from breaking, like real money, it's like, what about us? Like I've been dancing 20 years and some change. Yeah. Do I get anything without like having to do like flips and landing on my back and like right. I can't no more you yeah. know so yeah. it's a weird really weird spot to be in man yeah I think uh it is and I think it's only gonna get weirder <laughs> honestly I think if we can endure the pandemic and get through that I do see it becoming an interesting thing because right now you know breaking is so incredibly new I mean we it was only a couple of years ago that Storm and, and Ken Swift battled and how many breakers do you know in their 50s that are still actively dancing? You know, like breakers are actually getting older for like maybe the first time ever while still dancing. So it, it's really one of these things like where the OGs are the OGs, but you have all this other you have all these other generations of OGs that that are now what where where do they fit into this as time goes along? You know, like there's the B-boy from uh, here, actually, box one, uh, Ben Barnes. Well, I think is one of my he's one of my favorite dancers to watch, period. Um, yeah, he's dope as fuck. Yeah, and he's a super cool cat. And I've, I've rapped to him about that. You know what I'm saying? And it's like he's trying to make that lane for himself because he's like, yeah, I, you know, he has a, a feeling that there's only going to be so many spots at that top spot of people that are respected. It can be looked at as OGs and all this other stuff. And he's in his mid to late 20s. So he's actively like, yo, I got to figure that out. <laughs> like now and i can't wait for them to figure it out for me you know what i'm saying i can't wait for the because now the machine is descending on the art form so now there will be opportunities and there will be money to go around but it'll also still be weirdly political you know what i'm saying so it's like he even recognizes i have to create something for myself in my own lane to increase my value you know what i'm saying so that i'm good no matter what happens oh yeah for sure and that's the thing too like Talking about the evolution of, um, you know, like being a dancer and like when, we're, when you dance for so many years, it's like, where do you go from there type thing? So it's like, you know, you could teach dance. Uh, you can like, cause you know, like Moy and them have break free and, you know, my crew has this thing out here called the, uh, the breaking Academy. Yep. Sue logic has their own training thing. Like crews that have been around for a while. You like, you create, like, you got to find a way to legacy. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, box was saying, um, and you know, you got like, and it's crazy that he's in his late twenties. He's yeah. he's in my opinion, he's a young dude, but that he's not young, young, but he's but he's he's wise enough to know, like, okay, well shit, I gotta figure something out because yeah. I'm about to be in my thirties and then I'm gonna be in my forties, you know, and I gotta set some I gotta set something up at the table for myself. And I think a lot of uh a lot of us before now, I mean, I think maybe now maybe younger cats are starting to look at that a little bit more because it is on the table. Yeah. But for us, it was like I didn't start thinking about, like, oh, what am I going to do next until I was in my 30s? And I was like, but by that time, it was like, well, I didn't set anything up for myself. So, right. right. Um, yeah. But interesting that you brought up box because I wanted to transition to your uh, move from Ohio to Philly. When did you move and what was going on with that? And uh, we'll go from there. So uh, what wound up happening is after the knee surgery, <clears throat> I'm sitting around, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty sorry for myself because I know everything's changed. Uh, and and, and I, I was feeling sorry for myself because like that, those, I was really in my prime, the pat, like the, the two years prior the, to the injury. And then I think I probably had another two, three years after the injury of really being a, a prime dancer. Um, 
and I'd finally become the type of dancer that I wanted to be. So I was kind of mourning that, but I had no artistic outlet. And my friends had been telling me for years since I was a teenager, you're really funny. You should try stand-up comedy. And but I was such in the in the break life mode. I was like, you know, what was you talking about? But I'm at home with nothing to do. And uh, a girl I was dating at the time, she found an open mic and she said they do open mics on Sunday. This, this and this. You should go to that. So I called the bar and then I asked, how does this work? And they told me how it works. And I sat at home for two weeks and I wrote out a set, a five minute set. And I rehearsed it on my friends who were very patient. I rehearsed it on that girl I was dating who was extremely patient. And um, I went and did my first open mic. And um, I kind of flirted with it for about a year. And then in about about 2011, I was like, I'm going to give this an honest go. I'm going to go hard for a year. I'm going to put breaking on the background. That's going to be secondary. I'm going to go hard for a year. And I'm going to see what happens. So at the end of that year, I made Columbus's funniest person. Uh, I, made, I made that contest and I made it all the way to the finals. And I, I knew that the ceiling was only so high in Ohio comedy, um, especially back then. So I knew that with what I was doing uh, comedically, I was given some cachet and some leeway that I didn't feel would work anywhere else. And when I say that, that is to say I happened to be the only open micer at the time that was black and that was active. As a result, I felt that I was able to lean on some things that weren't going to help me um, going forward. Because I said, I even told myself, if I go to D.C. or if I go to New York or if I go to like Houston and I'm around black folk, they're going to look at me like I killed their cat if I come with this dog shit. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I had the idea, like, I'm going to move to Philly because you've never heard of an artist coming out of Philly that's bad. You've never heard of, like, you hear plenty of artists that come out of New York that are not good. You hear plenty of artists that come out of L.A. that are not good. But if you look at Philadelphia and the artists that they produce, none of them are bad. You know, like, because Philly has a reputation of being very, very hard on you. So I said, fuck it. I'm going to go to Philly to even figure out if I like the East Coast. So uh, it was the end of 2011, beginning 2012. I moved to Philadelphia and then just proceeded to get the shit kicked out of me. Mm. Yeah. So I was so, out. I was out every night. You know, I tried to hit the ground running every night. I saw performers that were way better than you know what I was used to. Um, going up dead last. You know, most nights. You know, one fifty-five, two o'clock in the morning. No one's there. Uh, you're talking. You're basically trying to tell your jokes to the hosts who have tuned out because they're drunk and they're tired and they're trying to get their dick sucked. And the, in the room, you know what I'm saying? So I, I just went, I started going through that. I started going through those real intense growing pains. Okay. So, so you move there, you start trying to break in and you're, you know, you're doing the grind. What's that? I mean, okay. For, cause I personally don't know any stand up comics, which is besides you, which is crazy. Cause I'm like, I know a lot of people that do a lot of things and I usually know like at least three or four. So what, tell, let's talk about the comedy grind. The beginning, you're like, I'm in Philly. I don't fucking really know anybody. I'm grinding these clubs, late night gigs, open mics, um, stuff like that. Like, how, what does that even look like for the, like for the average person like me so we can get kind of a picture? Oh, it's the shits. 
So like, <laughs> it's, the, it's the drizzling shits. And again, but it, it's like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, you know, a diamond is only forged through intense pressure, right? So especially back then, what it would look like is uh, it's Monday. I'm I'm wake up. Uh, I'm a write. I'm a write these jokes or or revise a joke. I'm gonna go to one mic. I'm hoping to go to another mic, and then I'm hoping to go to another mic. But I planned wrong, and I went to the most popular mic first. And since it's the most popular mic, that means I'm nobody. So my ass is going up last. I actually should have gone to the other two mics first because they end earlier, and I could have come out. I could have come there and then rounded it out. Tuesday, I'm going to another mic right in Center City, which is downtown Philadelphia. I go to that mic. I get put up dead last. No one's listening. I do my thing. Wednesday night, uh, I go to another mic. I go up relatively early because it's a newer mic run by newer people. Cool. I go to the other mic, eat a dick. Go to another mic. They put me up dead last. Cool. Thursday, I go to the most uh, popping uh, showcase mic in the city. I go there. I show up at about 8 o'clock. I don't go on stage until about 2 a.m. I go on stage, do my two minutes. They say, get the fuck out because technically we're closed and it's illegal for you to even be here. Boom. <laughs> Friday night, I'm not booked. And show nights are basically Thursday, Thursday through Sunday at most, and Friday through Saturday at the very least. So Friday, I'm not booked. And if there's an open mic, I might be a little tired. I don't want to go. Then I remember I'm away from my family. Fuck you. Go to that mic. No one's at that mic. You're performing in front of comedians. That sucks. Cool. Saturday, you ain't booked. So there ain't nothing but shows. So you sit in your ass at home dealing with the fact that you're not booked. Sunday, you go to this mic. Um, you go to one mic that, that ends super early. You go to another mic that ends super early. Then you go to the main mic, a really, really popular showcase mic. You go there. You sign up at about 8 o'clock. You go on stage roughly at about 1.30. Uh, you get your five minutes. And then you go home, wax, rinse, and repeat. That's, that's what it was like initially. And that's not even really confronting the writing aspect. It's just about the monotonous nature of it. And that's back then when there was less happening. So before pandemic hit, you know, there was multiple mics a night, every night and everything like that. So back then, even though there was more stage time, like to me, it was like there's so much stage time. Um, but there was just more stage, stage time with respects to where I was from. So uh, it was really just honestly, man, like going up there and and in a way fighting to be fighting for your life and when i say that i mean to say you are fighting to get noticed you're fighting to even you're fighting to make these people pay attention to you because they're like why should i even pay attention to you what is there about you that is oh you're from ohio go fuck yourself how about that how about that <laughs> like so the minute you get on stage especially in philly back then they said your name like coming up next to the stage the toil the audience was already annoyed with you because you hadn't made them laugh. You hadn't even gotten on stage yet, you know? So it was this consistent act of um, showing and improving. And what I learned in that is that those experiences made me become a, uh, a, a really good performer because you were consistently going up in rooms that were so disadvantageous to laughter. Like the mere, like laughter should not happen under these environments at this time of night. It, it shouldn't happen. So it kind of forced you to, to look beyond your material and look at what was funny about you and really plug into that and then weave your material into that and then come back out again. So it, it, it taught me how to be engaging because how do I keep people's attention? 
at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. Well, if they're drunk and I'm drunk too, I might as well call this shit out for what it is. So it sort of would snowball from there. Okay. So here's a, here's a question I have about that then is like, is there, if you could, like, how can you draw, can you draw a parallel between like trying to come up in b-boying or trying to come up in hip hop and like going places where nobody knows who the fuck you are or like, cause you know, you look at it like this, like prime example, when I was, um, the first time I ever left Ohio or the first time I ever left the Midwest, I would say for a jam, I flew to freestyle session eight. Yeah. That was 2004. Yeah. And, um, like hella people went to that jam. That was and, York, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we fly out there and like, I didn't really, I'd never really been in a room. Like we went to scribble jam. I went to a couple places where it was like cats from not Ohio, not the Midwest. But like, that was the first time I had ever been in a room and experienced the, the political exclusivity of like, nobody knows who the fuck you are. Everybody in here does what you do. Most people are better than you. Yep. Well, what's like, what's the point? Like, why am I niggas will leave the cipher like walk away from you know so it's like is there like do you feel like that experience like kind of helped you tough it out so to speak like well you know i mean like this ain't the worst place i've ever been where motherfuckers ain't paying attention to no you're no you're absolutely right like um breaking prepared me so much more for that because b-boys are so much tougher and so much more confrontational and adversarial um so it was nothing to be ignored by like a comic i was like you talk, you tell sad stories about your dick. Now you're funnier than me, but that's just, that you're funnier than me right now, but that's what you do. So you ignoring me and disrespecting me. I've had dudes try to fight me that could actually fight, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> over, over, over some dance and they get like, so, um, right. Yeah. I, I, Cause I have a similar feeling when I went to freestyle sessions, 11 and 12 and evolution, you know, and it was like, yeah, like you're just being ignored and like, you're good and you're good. That's not even the point. It's like, you're just, you're nothing. You know, I, I, meanwhile, like I'm at freestyle sessions and whatever. And I go to, I go into this cypher and I pull off a move that's sick and I stick it. And I know KML's in the cypher. I get up, that nigga has left the cypher. He is, I have, I have, <laughs> I have turned this man off from the cypher. He can no longer be around that whackness. Um, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, um, it, but it steals you to get better. And sometimes it would steal you to stand up for yourself. You know, I remember at evolution, just like battling because people thought they could just push you out of the way and it'd be like, I'm not going nowhere. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, I may be from Ohio, but we get busy where I come from. So you, you wind up defending yourself. I remember freestyle sessions. We were at a, uh, a pre-party and I was breaking. It was me and Tim and I was breaking and these French B-boys started throwing down and they were nice. And I hit the floor. I did my thing. There was a piece of glass on the floor and I ripped the palm of my hand open. You know what I'm saying? So that should be the end of it. Nah, I went to the restroom, cleaned that thing off, asked the bartender if they got, you know, a Band-Aid, put that thing on my hand, and then we went about 15 rounds. And we worked them boys. So those types of experiences, since breaking was so confrontational and so in your face, and since um, I understood and respected the art form more at that time than I did comedy, it was nothing for me to be like, y'all not going to ignore me. Like, I know the work that I need to do but you're not going to ignore me because quite frankly, I, where I come, this is, this is y'all's, I looked at it like a lot of y'all, this is the first time y'all have ever done something artistic on your own as an adult. I've already done this game before. So you can't shake me. 
you know, because I've seen tougher and I've seen better. And I know what it's like to get smoked in front of everyone in fr- uh, against a really good dancer. Y'all can't bring that same feeling out. There is even even now there is no comparable feeling like bombing is terrible. It's an awful, awful feeling. It does not compare to having having some dude burn the fuck out of you in front of a lot of people. I like that. That's, and it's and it's funny because it really does. It really does prepare you like like for anything, man. Like, I mean, I've, I've always done hip hop. I've done hip hop since I was a teenager. Same as you. So like and I've been bum rushed at jams because I talk too much. I bum rush niggas at jams because they talk too much. Like I mean, like or like or I've been somewhere where it was just me and like two or three other people and we not from there and they squad is bigger than ours and they bullied yeah. us out of the circle and what are we gonna do? We can't fight y'all. Yeah. It's just four of y'all and it's four of us. Yeah. So like yeah. I've been through all that. And so like now when I do anything, you know, like performance based or even, you know, like uh stage shows or, or you know like anything, I'm just like, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen here? Yeah. Like the worst thing is gonna happen. Like y'all not gonna like you and your crew step up on stage and snatch the mic. I've right. been in MC battles where that's happened. Like we'll take yeah. your mic from you. Like you, you whack, give me this shit. Yeah, now, what you gonna do? In Columbus. Yeah, I was in Columbus <laughs> for fucking like um like copyright and Jakai yeah. and a whole bunch of other cats like at Bernie's like if yeah. you whack they took the mic from you yeah, and I'm not from Columbus so I just I just got the mic took yeah so like <laughs> hip hop <laughs> hip hop will put you in a perspective man and it's, it's I think it's it's an advantage for any performance based artist yeah um get in there and take them lumps yeah but um let's take a let's take a quick break man i'm actually gonna uh if you don't mind i don't i'm not gonna do it live but uh i would like to uh interject with some of your material right here i usually do an independent artist break like yeah. i'm gonna do a music before the segment uh but i'd like to put one of your sets here if that's all right yeah make sure it's the ones where i kill okay we're, i mean i'm gonna let you pick, you can pick one for me man so let's take a quick break okay. and um and we'll come back all right sounds good yes sir i've been bartending for six years Woo! yeah and I gotta get out. I gotta get out. I gotta, I gotta get out, dude. I'm, I'm done, dude. I gotta get out. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm, I'm not looking at people the same way anymore. I think that people are worse now. Like, I've been bartending so long that I dislike people more. It's fucked up. I can now judge people based on what they drink. You can tell a lot by a person by what they drink. You can. Okay, a dude orders a Miller Lite, that's a blue-collar American with missionary sex every night. You know this, okay? You know this. Maybe he's a little ass. Maybe. Maybe, okay? Okay, like a vodka soda dude, that's a CrossFit enthusiast. Okay? You know this, okay? Someone orders a, a lemon drop shot, that's a white woman who likes Lizzo way too much. You know this. You know this. It's so triggering. I was bartending a month ago. I was, I was, I was doing a gig, concert gig. A month ago, a dude came up to me and he said, can I get a Long Island iced tea? And I said, boy, have you thought about therapy? And he said, what? I said, yes. <laughs> yes. I said, yeah. I didn't even make the drink. I did not even make the drink. I just slid him a referral number. I said, it's time for healing, boy. It's time. It's time. It's time for healing. That's the truth. You can't be you can't be doing the same drink no more. If you're over the age of 25 and you still drink Long Island iced teas, let me tell you something very important. Your parents' divorce was not your fault. It was not your fault. Trash man! I was once trash! I was once trash! 
24, I did them shots. I did. I did. I did a Long Island at that age. I remember one time, I went to Scully's. Went to Scully's. I asked the bartender for a Long Island iced tea. That man looked at me like I said all lives matter during a Black History Month. You so Yo, yo, you guys know, you know the Doc Rivers gift? He gave me that one. The Doc Rivers like... <laughs> I just held it. <laughs> and then I saw counseling and I became better. You understand this? <laughs> so fucked up. You gotta you gotta try to be better as a person. I'm in my thirties and a lot I know a lot of us are, whatever, it's no big deal. Some of us are even older and younger or whatever. But I feel like things are changing. Like I feel like things are changing. I had a birthday in August. I actually came to another bar here. I came to Fourth Street in the short north. And I got carded for the first time in a while. And the woman looked at me and said, you know, you don't look like you're in your 30s. And I was like, woman, I'm black. I better not. And it was like, I better not. But it's wild because like now I'm starting to age out of things very weirdly. And it's concerning. I'm approaching old guy at the club status. And that shit is terrifying. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's very disturbing. Like, I'm not there yet. I got time. I got time. But I got time the same way the poor ice caps got time. You know what I'm saying? Like, that shit there. But it's melting away rapidly. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's so I'm so afraid of, like, back in my 20s, dude, I didn't care. I went out. I turned up. I went and took all the pictures. I went and did it for the MySpace. We did it for the MySpace back then. <laughs> 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 Yeah, or a piece of MySpace. <laughs> Woo! Top 8, you don't know about that. <laughs> but now I'm so afraid of walking into a club and seeing a bunch of 20-something-year-olds taking a picture for Instagram and then my old ass walks into the frame like, huh. You know, there are not enough exits in here. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I get so afraid because it's already, it's already happened. It's already happened. Two weeks ago, I was in New York, I left the club, and I, I left the club, I le actually left the bathroom, and there were no paper towels, so I was enraged. I was already disrespectful. I was already, like, very upset. And then I saw this young girl, couldn't be more than 22, she was twerking for the TikTok. She was doing twerk moves. She was twerking, doing, I don't twerk, my pancreas is sensitive. But she was, she was twerking, she was doing it, and everything. And I, I looked at my homie, and I'm like, yo, bro, can you believe this? And my homie was like, yeah, dog, she got a fat ass. And I was like, nah, bro. That's like your bad knees, you understand? Like, like, guys, thank you guys so much. Have a nice night. All right, all right, we're back. Yes. So, um, before we jump back into the conversation about comedy, because I want to talk about like picking up steam and gaining traction, you know, successful. But um, I just wanted to mention too that most of if not all of, but definitely most of my favorite comics come from the East Coast somewhere, like uh, Boston, Philly, New York. Just some great comedy out there, man. I mean, Patrice O'Neill was my personal favorite comic of all time, for those of y'all who haven't had a chance to listen to him, man. I, I, it's because he sounds like what I want to say to people in yeah. his comedy. It's just, yeah. man, or he did before he passed, rest in peace. But so, yeah, let's um, yeah. dial in on... on um, actually starting to like make some moves pick up steam and become an established comic man how, how, how was that process how did that happen for you um it it takes a lot of one you know you you first it's important to get settled where you are and i had already left my home base you know what i'm saying so 
it was kind of a going into a bigger environment where you're no longer a big fish in a small pond. It's a, it's a pretty big pond. There are a lot of, you know, big fish who are going to New York and, and doing all these things. So um, I was getting on stage and I was getting on some shows and um, I, you know, I was getting, I was getting some traction on the independent shows, but there were definitely shows that I wasn't, you know, uh, that I wasn't going to be on. And uh, Helium Comedy Club in Philly has this thing called the uh, Philly's Funniest. And um, I signed up and it's very, and Philly's Funniest is like Columbus Funniest on, on steroids. Um, <laughs> they're just killers from everywhere. So most of, a lot of them aren't even from Philly. You know, they'll be from New York and they just try to come down and, 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 and win the bag and then get representation. So um, I, just, I just had it in my head, like, I'm going to fuck them up. I don't, I don't care how the votes go. I don't care if I make it to the next round. I'm just going to come in because there's nothing but killers. I don't care. I'm just going to come in and I'm going to fuck them up. Like, they will remember me. And I've, I've fucked them up. That night, I had the best set. And I got to the semifinals of that competition, which at that time was unheard of for what they perceived to be a newbie. So that... Um, <laughs> That gave me a little bit of steam. You know, the long, the long and short of it is once comedy clubs understood that I was funny, then the scene around seemed to seem to come around to the idea that I was funny. If I'm being totally honest, it was when established clubs were like, this guy makes people laugh. You know, this guy makes people laugh. This guy always leaves people in stitches. This guy is reliable. Then that's kind of when a lot of other people started to come around and be like, oh, yeah, he's funny, you know. Whereas before I wasn't on anyone's radar, you know, so it, it didn't really matter. And then from there it came festivals and then uh, I got a job at some comedy clubs and then it was more festivals. And, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, your name starts to ring out more. And also at the time I ran the Thursday mic that I mentioned, the Thursday showcase mic that I mentioned uh, going into for the first time, I actually ended up running that room for two years. So while Helium, I'm doing all this stuff at major comedy clubs, I'm running arguably the best comedy club or the best uh, comedy showcase, weekly showcase in all of the East Coast. So that helped raise my profile a bit. Um, but definitely it was like the clubs being like, we'll take him and we'll see what he does on this showcase started to help me. Um, because what, what, once that happened, once the crowd was on my side, once the, once the comics saw the crowd is with me, they didn't have to particularly like me, and that's not to sound negative in, in any sense. They just sort of had – they couldn't say that I wasn't funny because they saw me in front of almost 300 people have a great set. So they couldn't say anymore, well, he's not funny, when it's like, well, it's not that I'm not funny. You just never see me because every time I'm on stage, it's 1 o'clock, and when you're on stage, it's 10 o'clock. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So that's really what, uh, what started from there for me in terms of uh, – being recognized and then it became all right now you got to go to new york now you got to go to Jer jersey and now you got to go back home and now you got to go do stuff in chicago when you're back home um just to sort of make those connections raise the, that profile and work in those clubs so i would go back home for break and then i would go to helium or not helium but funny bone and i would do their showcase and i'd have a great set and i'd go to chicago and i'd go there and, and have a great set there and then you know, building from there over a period of years, you know, like I, I got my first job at a club in what, 2016, 2015 or 2016. I honestly can't remember. 
Um, and then, you know, my next job came in 2017 and then another one came in 2017. And then um, from there, you want to move up from being a host to a feature. So then I got to feature at Helium Comedy Club in Indianapolis uh, in October. And then I featured at the Funny Bone in upstate New York um, in, uh, goodness gracious, in November uh, of last year, I believe. And then, you know, you want to get into festivals that have representation um, so that you can potentially get an agent and things like this. So it's kind of this thing where as time goes on, your position increases, right? So I haven't gone on stage at one o'clock in years, right? Um, right. But, if, but if I go on stage at one o'clock, especially in Philly, it's because I want to, right? So and there are some times where I'll be like, yo, don't put me up yet, put me up later. Cause I want to try something and I want to work harder in a space. Or sometimes I don't really have hardcore jokes written out. I just want to be funny. Um, so it, it definitely comes with uh, the, the thing where you, as you advance and as you grow and as you build, you cultivate a space for yourself and then you go into some of these rooms and you're an established performer. And in some cases they view it as, well, we're lucky to have you here because mm. you don't, because you don't really have to come out, which is their thought process. They're like, you really, you really don't have to come here. Um, so we're going to use you. But again, it's, it became a thing where I was working Philly comedy club as well, Atlantic city comedy club. Um, so it, it changed in this respect. Whereas when I started here, I would be on stage, hopefully multiple times a night. I would be hoping to get maybe 30 minutes of stage time a, a week. Uh, this is back in 2012. Before everything stopped, my, my thing was I want at least an hour and a half of stage time a week. Now, I was actually on stage less than I was before, but I was given more time because I was working in more club settings. And I was doing more headlining showcases. So I'm being given more time. So for instance, by, you know, let's say I start comedy on Sunday. By Tuesday, um, I'll have already had about half an hour of stage time. By Saturday, I've already had about maybe two 20 to 30 minute sets. You know, just one 30 minute set and another 30 minute set. So that's already an hour. So I've gotten all this stage time, but I'm on stage considerably less. I'm on stage maybe five to six times a week, whereas before it was anywhere from, you know, 10 to 14. Mm, I see what you mean. So, so yeah, so you, you become, you get in different spaces, you get to perform with famous people, you get to make those connections um, or people that are about to be famous, and then you're rising there with them. And then a lot of it is, you know, festivals, um, putting your name out there, traveling. It's a lot like breaking in this respect. You want people to know you and you want to create more of a buzz. You got to start to go into them pockets a little bit, you know, and, and travel uh, a good amount, which it, you know, it's cool to, once you get there, but it, in terms of keeping your expenses down, it's definitely a stressor. But, um, but yeah, I was getting into the mode where I was traveling a lot. Um, I was going to, I wanted to headline a, a one nighter, at, at Good Nights Comedy Club, but that didn't get to happen because of all of this. Um, so things were definitely picking up in the right direction, but you know, life does what it does. But that's that's sort of what it takes and everyone's trajectory is different. You know, some people, they blow up relatively quickly within five years, but the theory is it takes you 10 years to be good. It takes you 10 years to be actually funny, which is to say automatic, no problems. You can handle most anything. You can pivot. You've got a good cachet of jokes. You also know how to work off the cuff. So 
you are not going to get rattled and you know how to be consistently funny even when you don't feel good, even when you'd rather not be doing it, even when you'd rather be at home or at the crib, even when you just went through a hard breakup or a family member died, you got 10 years in, we don't got to worry about you. I see what you mean. And it's kind of, it's kind of, um, it's kind of similar to the muscle memory that you develop from practice in your first couple of years in B-Boy in five years, six years of drilling your foundation. And, you know, you're working on your own concepts, your ideas, but you, A, you don't really know who you are. For yep. most of us, it started when we were young. We didn't really know who we, was, who we were as men anyways. And then right. also on top of that, uh, we didn't really know, like, enough about the culture and the dance to have cultivated an identity that wasn't, yep. uh, that wasn't disingenuous. Like, you become your genuine self in the dance a little yep. bit later. Um, yep. I wanted to uh, – actually, while you were talking, I had a couple of things pop in my head because I'm trying to, like – I'm feeling out this comedy thing, man. I, I like, I'll tell you, like, again, like I say, I listen to a decent amount of comedy. Um, uh -huh. You know, most of it, not a lot of it is indie, but I want to get into that more because of just like, just having this conversation um, about hip hop as it parallels the comedy circuit. Because I want to ask you right now, well, I want to ask you about like, because you were talking about um, being a comic in a room full of comics is different than being a comic in a room full of uh, audience. So, mm -hmm. How would you say, like, under, under, okay, like, you, like you're saying, like, people's trajectory and how they blow up, like, like let's, let's take uh, Kevin Hart, for example. You know what I mean? Like, the majority, I mean, Kevin Hart is probably arguably the biggest comic in the world right now, right? Definitely. Um, from just comedy and then, like, his other shit, you know what I mean? Because, like, Joe Rogan just signed a deal for a million, a hundred million dollars with Spotify. Yep. That's for podcasting. So it's just, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but, like, I can't, like, if I'm a comic, it's like being a, a, a B-boy who's a hater. If I'm a comic and I dislike another comic based on my knowledge of the craft of comedy, but they're still funny. Like you said, like, you're in a room and the room is cracking up. Fuck you guys and your jaded comedy view. I'm funny, mm -hmm. nigga. Like, these niggas is laughing. So yeah. where does, the, um, where does the, the, the line get drawn in terms of, like, wanting the respect of your peers in comedy? as opposed to just being accepting and satisfied with the fact that you know you're funny because the general public is entertained by your comedy. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, I've always, I've always coming from hip-hop culture, I've always thought of how I approach comedy very much like a hip-hop head, so not necessarily like a comedian. So I know what I have to do. I have to be out. I have to be active. I have to write. At the same time, my personality is my personality. So I'm not going to try to talk like a like a quote unquote comedian because I'm I'm, I'm me. I'm a B-boy. I'm a hip hop head. I'm going to still be funny. I'm going to follow all those rules. Um, but I, I didn't come from this place. Like, again, I, like I said, for a lot of for a lot of performers and it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's their first time doing something artistic that is independent of any type of institution or, or parental um, requests. They're just doing it to do it. So I didn't, I, I already, I had already done that with breaking. So for me, I always thought I'm going to be respectful as a result. I expect respect. Um, mm. So that's how I've always, I've always thought about it. And as a performer, the way I look at it is this, if you, so long as you're not a biter and you can make that audience laugh, I don't have to like what you do, but I'm not going to say you're not funny. Cause I have to give you that respect. If I'm watching you on stage crush 
it doesn't make me laugh, but you are slaughtering. I can't say you're not funny. I can't disrespect you like that. I can't disrespect the craft like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I can sit there and be like, that person's hilarious. Or if you do comedy long enough, your laugh kind of changes. It takes you longer to like, it, it's harder to make you laugh because you can see jokes coming. And that's not a bad thing, but you just do it so often, you see where things go. And even when you do laugh, it's like a, huh. It's not an honest, genuine belly laugh because you're in this comedy mode all the time. To me, it's always been, hey man, it, you know, and a, a lot of performers I know, when I started, they didn't particularly care for me or respect me, which is fine. But it was only when I chose, I was winning things over again and again and again, they were like, hey man, like you, you're, yeah, you became really something. I didn't know they didn't respect me, but I wasn't really particularly worried about it because I understood that I'm not here to make the comedian laugh. Now, when it's just us, of course, I need to have a funny joke or I need to be funny when it's just comedians. But I'm doing this with the intention of being in front of people. So I'm going to write for those people. I'm not going to write a joke that a comic will like because that's that's kind of doing shit backwards. You know, it takes a lot to make a comic laugh. If you're trying to make a comic laugh, there's a chance you're saying some really deep, dark shit. Now, a couple mm. on a date night on a Friday doesn't want to hear that shit from someone they've never heard of before. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, so for me, it's always been about making that audience laugh. Um, and and, and that, that that's the function of my job. Now, I know I can make comedians laugh. I've done that. But they those are two totally different things. You know what I'm saying? Those are two totally different things. And some people are really good in that they can make comics laugh and audience members laugh with the same material because it's just so out there and so wild. To me, it's I, when I make comics laugh, it's generally I'm doing something totally different than what I'm doing with the audience. I'm still plugged in and engaged and entertaining. But one, I'm doing if I'm making the audience laugh, I'm doing a lot more material. You know what I'm saying? Mm. If I'm making the comics laugh, I'm doing a lot less material. Um, so to me, it's always been about, I always believe in if the person's not a piece of shit, if they don't steal Joe, if they're not a biter, they go up there and they're killing your, your opinion means fuck all, especially if you're a comic, an audience member can have an opinion cause they're the consumer. But if you're a comic, this is what you do. Fuck your opinion. Just watch. And honestly, it's in your best interest to figure out why they're funny. Man. Study it, study it. I want to say right this too, like a couple things. Uh, one, I just had a, uh, I just hit a new plateau in like my interactivity with interviewing. Because while are you telling me this stuff, I'm like, I'm listening and I'm filtering it, and it's bringing like, I, I just jotted down like 50 things that I wanted to talk about. Which ordinarily I like to let the conversation flow, but that's that's funny because it's it's sparking my brain because yeah. of how similar this comedy shit is in my opinion to hip hop. Like for example, yeah. like it just what you was talking about comics and, and like craft and understanding. Like I don't personally, I'm not a fan of Eminem. I acknowledge Eminem as one of the greatest MCs of all time. Anybody yeah. who says otherwise is a fool. Like I, yeah. his, his whiteness, notwithstanding his skill level is un unquestionable. His album yep. sales, all this stuff. So I have to argue those points and it behooves me as a connoisseur, as an MC myself and just as a hip hop head, yeah. I got to let him have that because if not, I'm being a hater because it's so blatant. Exactly. I don't he's not my palate. I'm not going to yeah. turn on an Eminem record. Never really have. Right. But I can't take from him what he got. Exactly. So when you're saying that in comedy, I'm like, damn, that's hella crazy. 
And then it also brings in my mind the parallel of like the comics comic versus the, the people's comic. Like, you know, like, and, and what, like you said, it behooves you to not be a hater and find out how these niggas is getting their money. Like guys, yeah. like, I personally think Cat Williams is hilarious, but yeah. everybody don't think Cat Williams is hilarious because right. Cat Williams ain't trying to have everybody think he's hilarious. But instead of in his lane, like a lot of his trouble comes from his inability to work with other people and how he yeah. just blatantly like he's I'm, I'm not fucking with y'all. But yeah. if he could just sit back for a second and sit on his ego and be like, I wonder why a hundred million motherfuckers think Kevin Hart is so funny. And right. can I can I get something from that? As opposed to being like Kevin Hart is a sellout, whoopie whoop, all that stuff that he, you know, like so that's just interesting, like you said, that the maturity that that it takes as a performer, which I attribute so, to somewhat to your journey in hip hop, allowing mm-hmm. you to let niggas have their lane. Yes. And be yeah. like, yeah, it, it, yeah, because breaking actually helped a lot with that. Because in breaking, you're gonna lose a lot. <laughs> like you all, you're gonna lose even if you make it to the finals and you lose. Guess what? You lost. You know what I'm saying? Like you doing these competitions, you taking L's. And it, it steals you to that fact and it toughens you up to that fact. And while you have to watch, you have to watch why someone's good, even if you don't like their style, even if you don't like what it is that they do, you can't sit there and be like, that's not effective, especially if it is. You know what I'm saying? So learning that in breaking really helped me in comedy because it was just like, I don't have like the opinions that some comedians were having. I was like, I don't have these intense opinions. You know, I don't I don't think this is hack shit or I'm not really thinking that I'm thinking this person does not make me laugh, but they are crushing. Why are they crushing? And I would sit there and I would watch them consistently and be like, oh, that's why I figured it out. That makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So as a result, so what it what it did do is since I could figure out what actually made them engaging and funny, it made me a better performer and it made me understand their humor better. To the point where I was like, that is funny. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to being like, I know you're funny, but it doesn't make me laugh. I'd be like, oh, no, that's funny. That actually is. And I have a greater understanding now. Now my palette for humor and joke writing and joke telling and performance has actually grown because I've done the homework. Because I have to be around this thing. I've taken in the information. This is a totally different style with a person whose, whose brain thinks in a way that I would never think but they're still being as effective or more effective than I'm being on this given night with this same audience. Why is that? Mm. You know? And, and I, and I mean, I don't think you can like, cause you know, stereotyping is na- is nature is natural for the human brain. It's like a, it's a, not a defense mechanism, but it's a way to filter out like pre um, ex- like things I've already experienced. So with that being said, but like you just said right now, I think it does really help to, like once you get to understand somebody's perspective, and this is just some life shit. It's like you can understand somebody's perspective, which may make their approach a little bit more understandable. It doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong. It doesn't necessarily make it like, you know, acceptable or not. But it's like I can see why you come in like that. In in a comedy sense, it's like, yeah, like I said, I don't think like that. I don't. I mean, I'm not afraid of spiders, so that's not necessarily. But I understand that you're afraid of spiders. And that makes this shit hilarious to me because I could see your yeah. dumb ass up on the bed with a broom, grown ass man. Like now I get it. Yep. And then I can, I can, I can acknowledge that and I can accept it. But it's funny that you, you know, not, not funny, but it's interesting that you, um, you mentioned losing competitions because I wanted to talk about navigating the politics of the comedy circuit 
in the sense there has to be politics. There has to be favoritism. There has to be. And like, instead of those B-boys that call out the judges and beat their head up against a brick wall trying to change the culture, as opposed to just like, how can I more effectively move within this culture that's around me? You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, um, def- like, give me a little like breakdown on how that works in terms of comedy, because I know there has to be similar, you know, situations. Um, so what I can talk about very that, I, that I've personally been dealing with that I was personally dealing with before things ended was the idea of, you know, being a consistent feature at clubs that I consistently worked at because I lived in the area. And it was hard because uh, I would see other people get past as features. And I'm not saying they didn't deserve it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying I definitely deserved it. And they all had it. There was a common denominator in this. And it was that, you know, it was. It was hard, especially if you are a performer, if you're a black performer, you are expected to be talented, but there are only so many spots available for you. So, uh, you know, it was it was a frustrating thing to be like, this is where I live. Why can't I feature here more consistently? And, and, and for those that are confused, the feature is the person that goes up before the headliner. They're basically doing 25 minutes to half an hour. And um and it would be political because in some senses, the booker could like you just fine. The booker could know that you're hilarious, but they just like this other performer as a person more. And not so surprisingly, that other person kind of looks like them. Um, you know what I'm saying? So it was a lot of uh, navigating that or even it with, with festivals, you know, like uh, Laughing Skull had a controversy last year where... Um, <clears throat> They had their festival, which is in is in the south in Atlanta, and it's like one of the best in the world. It's changed people's lives. Sam Morell, who's very very funny, he did their festival and it legit changed his life. This last time, there were just no black people on that thing. You know, in there, Atlanta, there were yeah, there were there was no black people on this on this festival, um, and and like next to none. But it was just it was the whitest festival um, that you had ever seen. And then, and, and then it, it prompted us to have an uncomfortable conversation because we had to sit there and say aloud, but y'all are not funnier than us, pound for pound. And, and it wasn't a thing that black performers liked saying, but it was like, can we be honest for a second? You guys, it was that thing. It's like the implicit bias. You guys look right through us and you expect us to be funny. So it doesn't count. But then you'll look at a white person who reminds you of your brother, your sister, your 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 nephew, uh, your cousin, who's hilarious, and it'll resonate so much with you. Meanwhile, it, and it's not saying that they're not funny. I am not saying that. But what I'm saying is it's it's not a meritocracy because if it was merit based, that decision probably wouldn't be made, or there's a mm-hmm. chance the decision wouldn't be made. So there was the political aspect of, uh, and I remember the last few times. There was the political aspect of that, but then also in, in terms of what I was talking about before, you know, the, the festival, there were only so many spots available. So while I think that a person could have had a, cog- you know, some, uh, a, you know, a cognitive blind spot, I, I also understood that very reasonably they were like, you know, one person was like, yes, you deserve this. I just don't have the spot right now. And I believed, I believed her fully, but it was also like, but why did it take that long for it to get to that? I could have had that sooner type of thing. Um, so there's the politics around that because, and again, it, the simple analogy is it's like when you see a black person dance, 
when anyone sees a black person dance well, no one is surprised. When they see yeah. a, when they see a white person dance well, they lose their minds. People start recording. It goes viral on Facebook. And next thing you know, your 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 closest white friend is showing you this for some reason. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that's what it, that's what that is. <laughs> oh um, shit! But it's true. Very true. So you're kind of swimming upstream, and it's it's the idea of being. Uh, you have to be twice as good to be seen as half as competent. Um, so I think that that was the big, and, I, and now I'm talking about the industry and the machine. I'm not really talking about the petty beefs that comedians have when they dislike each other, because uh, comparatively speaking, I haven't had to deal with that in a while, thankfully, um, just because I was able to sort of disconnect from that because I was doing professional work and I do private gigs and stuff like that. So like I was doing stuff that was related to the bag and my status as opposed to being like, why don't they book me on this independent show that's really great? Like, they either want to book me or they don't want to book me. I, I don't really worry about that. It's like, yeah, but this is my career. The career aspect is what I was worrying about and what mm -hmm. I was in on in, in advancing that way. So, you know, it, the thing that I realized is, okay, I've got to travel to other clubs. And I was in talks with other clubs to, to headline, you know, I'll do a one-nighter on a Wednesday and, and do things like that just to put butts in seats because what became clear to me is, that political game, I'm not going to win. Uh, and, and honestly, I could beat my – I've been the B-boy that has called out the judges and battled them. You can win, and it doesn't matter. It's still fucking lost. So what my goal was, let me go to these clubs. Let me do their small room, which is like 75 to 100 people. Let me sell that thing out. All these people are, are learning about me for the first time. <clears throat> So and let me build up a, a fan base and let me build up an audience because I can't argue my position any more than I already have. I, I, you know what? I, and my thing was, if I am the opener and I'm doing better than the feature does, there's a problem. Um, so but I couldn't continue to have that argument because I don't think it was really helping me. Um, and I didn't want to get into the nature of um getting bad feelings because I even said, I'm annoyed that I have to say this. I'm annoyed that I have to bring this up. Um, so I realized, okay, well, you can't expect them to do better because they have certain restrictions that they simply cannot move from. All politics aside, there are only so many spots. So you have to get your numbers up to the point that they have to use you because they know you'll sell tickets. Mm. So it was transitioning into that, all right, bro, you gotta be able to put butts in seats. It's not about you not being funny. You're funny, everyone knows that. You've got the time. You can do an hour. You've done an hour at a comedy club before. What it's about now is, oh, he has a fan base that is willing to come see him. Let's book him. Because that's what comedy was transitioning into. Because um, I'd already worked. I'd featured for, like, Instagram comics. You know, I, I did uh, the Prince Theater in Delaware and featured for this guy, Eric D'Alessandro. Funny dude. Nice dude. In Instagram. That's how he blew up. So I'm the comic with more time in featuring for this guy who blew up on on social media but you know i you can't be mad at it he just got me a payday and he helped sell out the room now how do i get myself into that similar discussion even though mm -hmm. i'm more of a I'm, I'm more of a traditional stand-up i need to get those numbers up for justification for bringing for, for a club to be like let's book him because we know his numbers will do good wow and you know what's interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, again, like mirroring the parallels, it's like, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people 
who understand comedy or who listen to a lot of comedy or listen because I listen to comics like I listen to Opie. I used to listen to Opie and Anthony a lot, listen to the comics on there. I like to listen to people talk about their craft because of how much I respect certain people in that industry. I mean, I'm learning a lot about the inner workings now, but like, and a lot of people say this, that like comedy is one of those last uh, raw art forms in the fact that it up until recently hadn't been affected uh, like by uh, like excessive censoring and like, like backpedaling and apologetic nature. And like, you know, even the fact that you just mentioned that there's like Instagram famous comics, like, you know, like it would be like, being in the game rapping for 10, 12, 15 years, but all of a sudden you like the head, you, you're like the, the opening act for a SoundCloud rapper because SoundCloud yeah. rappers, they generate numbers. And it's like, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's also like, like you said, learning to accept and be comfortable and capable of observing how can I make this shit work for me? Cause it's not going anywhere. Right. And, and, and the entertainment industry, if you allow it to, it'll, it'll make you have the boo-boo face and it'll make you bitter. And to me, and again, I have to thank Breaking for this. I already got all that shit out the way with Breaking. I, I, you know, the funny thing about it is I became the best breaker that I ever was when I stopped caring. When I stopped caring about how the judges were going to go, when I stopped caring about the crew that was in front of me, when I just focused in on me and I started to look at everything like an energy exchange, like a conversation, that breaker, that breaker puts out that, I'm going to put out this. I started winning. (laughs) I, I just, I, you know, I got through that bitter phase and I was like, let me control what I can't control and let me be the most complete and compelling dancer I can possibly be. Things started to go my way. And keep in mind, by this point that things are going my way, I'm not overly concerned with the outcome, which was fucking me up. Um, but I did go through, you know, you're a teenager and you're, yeah, you go through that bit, bitter period in breaking. Like, this is whack. They're whack. You're talking shit. You're getting into beefs. You know, fights are breaking out, dumb shit like that. So by the time I got to comedy, it's like I've already what what some people were going through, uh, their hard feelings that they were going through, which were justified in many cases. I'm not trying to sit there and say they weren't. But I was like, oh, I've already done that. You know what I'm saying? Like and at the time, it's like oh, I'm 28 and I've already gotten that one out the way. You know, all I can do is, is be better as a performer. And once I be better as a performer, then I have to then I have to create a cult of personality. You know what I'm saying for myself. So um, because, you know, again, like you, you brought up the interesting point about what if you open up for a SoundCloud rapper? Imagine, you know, it's like, you know, uh, one of the new rappers. Imagine the dude who had to open for Takashi 69 <laughs> You know, what if that dude had been in the game for a minute? And he's like, this is what's this is what's happening now. It, it will become very frustrating. But Takashi got popular online. It was it was never about bars. It was never about lyrics. He was an engaging personality. So it's like if that co- if that rapper got bitter, it's like I dig that, but you got to be engaging because people like to buy the brand now. You know, it's it's not so much one of these things where people are just hiring performers, clubs and 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 venues hire performers that they know will fill that space now probably more than ever. You know what I'm saying? Because they want to make they want to get that return back. And best believe, if we get through all of this stuff, if we get through this pandemic. When these clubs open, there's going to be less money going around for performers, so we've got to be more creative, and they're going to bring out the performers that they best feel can fill the room. And that, that's they're not going to be taking as many chances on someone in my position in that regard because they need to sell the room to make up what they lost. And I'm talking about the clubs that even survived this. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's uh, that's 
that's something that I wanted to talk about too. I wanted to kind of thinking about like the now as uh, I mean, there's definitely going to be a new normal. There's going to be um, a change of uh, not changing of the guard, but definitely like a changing in the, the, uh, the way things are done. Um, how, how are y'all adapting? And by y'all, I mean the comedy um, scene. Like I know that I've seen you had a couple online things coming on, like online showcases and stuff. Like I know a lot of people are trying to like land grab and navigate this new, like, everything being online or Instagram or Facebook live or zoom or, you know, like I just see a lot of people in different industries doing that. Like, what is that looking like for y'all right now? Uh, right now? I mean, one, the technology is not quite up to par for what we need. So we're still figuring out like how to, it's the worst thing ever to tell a joke and you can't hear people. Ooh. So with, with things like the zoom, they start to let, uh, audience members into the room, so to speak, putting them directly into the room. And they, they'll say, please uh, turn your microphone on and laugh so that the comics can hear you. Um, so that's been a thing that people have been doing. Uh, it's funny to me because I've even said this, like in the end, we all wound up becoming Instagram comics anyway. We all wound, <laughs> up, we all wound up becoming internet comics at the end of the day anyway. You can't talk shit about it. We all wound up being it. So um, I think... People are trying to navigate like that. I think some people are trying to create rooms and shows so so um, they can stay relevant, um, which is a very smart thing to do. I think for me, I've taken this as I'm, I'm just a, like the watcher. You know, it's like, let's see what's happening. I don't want to run a room. Um, you know, I, I've got some things in the works. A room is not one of them. But I, I need to watch the trend of what's happening. And the trend of what's going on because the clubs are definitely watching that. And then not only understand the clubs are watching that, it's like, well, you've also got to create something that can exist outside of the club. Um, and it just as a way to have that for yourself. I know a lot of comics are setting up Patreons. You know, uh, Bobby, Bob Kelly, who's one of the funniest comics out, you know, his podcast and his Patreon are helping, you know, helping pay the bills right now. And, um, so a lot of us are doing that. I know some comics who they have their podcast and now they've got their Patreon because they need to recoup some losses. And thankfully they have people who are already subscribed to them. And it's like, Hey man, if you throw us five bucks, that'll help out plenty. And once you have a fan base, they are loyal. And I know, you know, some of my homies, they've been, they've been doing pretty well because, you know, the fans understand. And I think the thing that I, some of us comics sort of underestimated myself included that when you have this fan base, um, they are incredibly, incredibly loyal. And you give them something that they find to be so valuable, which is laughter. And also at the same time, they just like you. So I think we're starting to sort of see, especially a lot of us who were doing the road and doing the shows, we're really starting to see the importance of having a fan base and having a, and just cultivating that and taking care of that and nurturing that because they're the ones who really get you over the hump. You know, it's not so much anymore where like the industry puts you there. That still happens. But normally it's it's a bunch of people being like, no, we want this person and no one else. Mm. So, um, and since you mentioned that, too, um, I know you uh, you and your homeboy were running a, a, a long time ago, actually, a, year, a couple of years back. And I don't know if it was still up and running, but I know you had a podcast and um yeah. You guys still are you guys still doing that? And if so, how but, how's yeah. it doing? So what happened? What happened is it was the Them Boys podcast, and uh, loved it to death. 
what wound up happening is is that uh, my 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 co-host Alex, my partner, good friend of mine, Alex was just transitioning. You know, like he was moving out of the city. He and his wife wanted to settle down, and the East Coast is set up in such a way that everything takes time. Like commuting on the East Coast, the traffic here is terrible. Um, the roads suck. Um, so he was coming from he was coming from Westchester, Pennsylvania to Philly to shoot a lot of those final episodes. And that's a, that's about a two hour commute if you're lucky. And all the while he was trying to sell his house in the city and and he was putting tens of thousands of dollars into that house. And he just couldn't, it was too much stress for him. So he just couldn't, he felt it was best if he just focused in on selling his house and, and his marriage, which he's totally right to do. Um, Alex and I still talk and I still give him shit, dude, because people still hit me up and they're like, yo, what happened to that podcast? Are you guys coming back? Cause we had a following um, and we had a pretty big following. Uh, so I do, I, I do, I do hurt him with that every now and again. And I will send him this to let him know that he continued to hurt me when we had real steam going, but he wanted mm. to be a family man uh, and take care of that. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, to kind of, do some commentary on that in and of itself. Like, I think, um, like you said, when you have a fan base, because you guys were making moves in the, in the podcast space, like, bef- like now, and I'm not saying this to sound jaded or, or be rude to anybody, but now everybody in a mama got a podcast, which is cool. Yep. Yep. Uh, I am also one of everybody's mamas, even though I've been dabbling for like a year and a half, maybe two years or something like, but this is my first year of just like, I'm going to make this part of my, part of my resume. Uh, yeah. But yeah, man, I remember like when I even first started messing around, like you, you know, like you gave me advice and, and told me how your guys' process and I listened to your show and, and it was like, I mean, I think like maybe now we're in a space where even like this, like, you know, you're in Philly, I'm in Las Vegas, we're in a place where technology is starting to catch up yeah. to the audio. Um, I prefer face-to-face conversation because I usually work interviews in a, uh, in a studio but we're somewhere where you can achieve an acceptable level of product with minimal equipment and you, yep. you know, like, and you can, you, so, I mean, it's something to consider to your partner in crime. Like now that he's all settled down with his family and stuff, I'm like, you could get you a little mic and y'all could get them boys back up and running. I'm just saying. Yo, you know what? You are not, I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's going to have to, it's about whether or not, and also Alex is one of those, I mean, goodness gracious, I'm at almost 11 years of comedy. When I, I mean, I think Alex, before he dropped out, was at about 14, 15. Um, so, yeah, so Alex had some time in, man. And Alex had a time, I had time to experience a lot of things, experience what to do, experience what not to do. Uh, but no, I agree. It, it's a thing where it's like, there ain't no reason for me to not, for us to not do that, you know? But it has to come from a place of, I think for Alex, it's, does he want to, which is a fair question. And does he feel like we have anything to say? You know what I'm saying? Mm. I think, I think that's really the big, which is a genuine question. I ask myself that constantly. It's like, well, if you get back in the game, cause I thought about that and been talking to, you know, some homies about that. It's like, what are we going to say though? Cause we have to figure out that aspect, you know, especially as, if I'm doing a podcast in all likelihood, it might be with a comic, but what the fuck are we going to talk about? You know, because we have to carve out that lane and, and, and the way that the podcast is presented has to be different. 
it, 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 it doesn't, I don't want, if I get back into that on a personal level, I don't want the act to, of, of listening to the podcast to be burdened, to be a burden of any kind. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. want it to be something that you look forward to and something that has some real kick as opposed to, oh, my friend just started a new podcast and I, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I don't, I don't need that one. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, um, thinking about it in that light, like that's one of the reasons why I changed the format because the podcast for me, the first year of it was just me talking shit about like how I felt, what I like, what I don't like, what did I watch on TV? I had a chicken sandwich, you know, that kind of shit. And it was good for the practice, but after a while it felt like it felt redundant because yeah. there's a million niggas talking about whatever the fuck ever podcast. So yeah. I get that. And then um, it's actually interesting because it segues to me, like, what are you guys going to talk about? And I, that made me, because I always want, I wanted to ask this because we were talking about it earlier, but it's like, what exactly is funny to a comic? Like, what do, like, you you know, like, like you say, you spend so much time in the game, you spend so much time, you can see jokes coming, you're familiar with the craft in and out, you know how to write, you know, like, you, you, what do y'all, find? it's like asking a porno star what's sexy, like, what's funny yeah, exactly. to someone you, who's funny? Yeah. yeah, how do you still come? <laughs> like, how do you, right. like, like, you're like a professional at this. You're basically an athlete. How do you still come? Uh, right. For me, I think that uh, interesting and fresh takes are, are funny to me. A good story has always been funny to me. Um, fearlessness is funny to me. So when someone is fearless and they're making the audience laugh while being fearless, I think is I, I like that a lot. I see that a lot in myself, but when I see other people do it, it's just so fucking refreshing um, because I, I think being afraid of the audience is not like that's eh, I don't like that. Um, everyone has their own anxieties. But mine isn't that my anxiety is the tax man. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I think I think a really good, funny story. It's just it'll crack me up. Like, what's the guy's name? Um, Matt Bogner who's a famous comedian. He's been around forever. He has this story about uh, like going, going and getting a massage and that I believe has like a happy ending. And it's a whole story. It takes about anywhere from, I, I think he can do a five minute version and a 25 minute version. So it's a really, really good one. Um, but I, but it was just such a funny story because it's a story that brings you into it. And, and he describes things so well, especially when you tell longer stories like that. I like description. So when you can paint the picture for me and you can still do it while having, uh, you know, your, your setups in there, your punchlines in there, I love it because then I'm not even, then I feel like I'm just watching it as an audience member. That's when I start to laugh uncontrollably and my stomach starts to hurt and I'm like, I'm like I got the tears. And I, rem and I remember that because I remember him doing that joke. And there was a part of the joke where he just he did something to insult the woman who was giving him a massage and she was Asian. And she just turned it up on him. And then she just like stuck his her elbow into the spine of his back. And he just describes how like his, his toes went up and they started to curl at a, at, a, at a 95 degree angle. Like and it was so descriptive that I just was I was on the floor at this comedy club, literally on the floor laughing like a kid so jokes that jokes that make me feel like i'm not doing this are really uh really really make me they're they're really fun to watch jokes that make me think that i'm watching tv again and watching someone do this you know 
Mm. I liked it. And like, it kind of, it kind of, you kind of lose the fact that, like you said, I do this. And I think that's a particular, I think that's a skill like that in an artistic sense that you, that, that some people have like some, uh, like, again, like, you know, some B-boys I, I critique cause I dance for so long. Like, but then it's, sometimes I'll just watch a cat and I'm like, yeah, that was dope. Like, I don't yep. have to, it's not, it's not like the obligatory props because it's physically challenging. It's not yep. like the, you know what I mean? Like I approve of your style. It's just like, I'm watching the set and I'm like, Cause I stopped getting hype a long time ago. So I'm imagining right. it's kind of the same thing, but yeah. then every once in a while I watch some shit and I'll get hype. I'll be like, that was good. Cause I forgot I was a B-boy for a minute. Yep. Forgot I was yep. an MC for a minute. Yep. Um, I got a couple uh, more things on my list, actually two more things. Uh, and um, so I want to, I want to segue into that. This is still comedy related. Um, what dating back? Like, did you have any, who's your top five? comics as far as like that you could say either influenced you or you respect their craft and their style they don't have to be super famous it could be like who who's who's your top five right now okay so from the list uh so i'll say this um there was never any comic that that i watched that ever made me want to do comedy so oh. i need to get that out the way there was never a comic that made me want to do comedy because i was already dancing i already had another thing i was dancing i was i was in that mode I was just watching it to laugh. I will say, honorable mention, Kevin Hart was the first comedian that made it look fun to do. So I'll give respect Word. to that. Yeah. So um, my top five is going. It's going. It's going to be. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> um. Wow. Uh, it's gonna be Bill Cosby, number one. Uh, he's. A, I can say, yeah, he's a monster. I don't think there's a better comic than him ever. As good, sure. Better, nah. Um, who else would go in there? The rest are not in order. Patrice O'Neill, um, Louis Black. Mm. Uh, Tony Roberts. Um, no, actually, let me take Tony out because Tony, I became a fan of Tony when I was actively already doing comedy. Um Goodness gracious, who would it be? Uh, you know what? Don D.C. Curry. My man. Don D.C. Curry, man. He, he had me in stitches, man. That guy, that guy was something. He still is, but he was really, he just, he had me going. And, mm, 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 mm. yeah, probably Chappelle. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah I, that's that's and that's actually I mean, that's a solid list for guys like um, I mean, because we had I mean, this is another thing that this age, not to date myself or anything, but this age has allowed me. It's afforded me the opportunity to be at a place in my life where I've seen several generations of most things, sports, mm -hmm. film, music, any type of art, um, fast food restaurants. I've seen generational like so it's like. I've seen a gang of comedy. Like I grew up watching Eddie Murphy, Bill Cosby, Richard Pryor, fucking, you know, like um, George Carlin. Like I've seen a lot of, and then like the, the era, the death comedy jam era, the Chris Rocks, the, you know, like that stuff to the, you know, now I, I, I've seen a lot of comedy. Um, so I've had the opportunity to like, 
it's funny. Comedy was something that I've always enjoyed that I didn't know I was observing it. Like I sat down with a buddy of mine the other day, about a month ago, uh, he does uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu competitively and he used to be a popper. I mean, he still pops, but he's not, you know, same thing. So we, uh, we got to talking about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and mixed martial arts. And I didn't realize like how much affinity I have for combat sports because I've been watching boxing since 1982 or 1983 or right. some shit like that. And I didn't, it, it wasn't anything I was actively checking for, but I've been watching it for so long that it's, you know, same thing with comedy and a lot of stuff. Um, right now, like I, 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 I dig storytelling. I'm in a yeah. real good uh, guys. Like um, I know you, I, you're familiar with Ali Sadiq. Yep. I know. Yo, I actually, yeah, I worked with him. He's a, he's one of the best. Oh man. He's great. His storytelling I love it because it's so laid back. It's so natural. Like even I've seen some of his stand up and I was like, I even prefer his storytelling style more than that. Um, yeah. Guys like like Big J, Big J Okerson. Yeah. I like him. Yep. Funny as a motherfucker. Um, Patrice O'Neal, again, like I say, is my favorite comic of all time, even amongst mm -hmm. the greats. I don't think he's the best, but he's such a like a lot of my a lot of my um, respect for him comes from listening to him in a non-comedy setting like on right. Opie and anthony on the black phillips show like he's a, he was a fucking smart ass dude like with his worldview and funny as hell at the same time um so that's the kind of shit i watch a lot of now um i didn't mean to start rifling off my but it just made me think like as a, of how much comedy i've seen um and last but not least what's next if assuming the world goes back to normal what's next Oh, uh, man. Um, what's next is that assess what the situation looks like and go from there. So assess what the situation looks like, uh, assess what you actually can do. And then, yeah, build up that base. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, look at the options in front of you and build up the base, you know, build up the base, build up the amount of clicks, build up the people that want to come see you make the word of mouth stronger. You know what I'm saying? Build up the follow. Like it's like you got to have that annoying Instagram follower to following count. It's like you know you got to get that up. So, mm. um, but you know, but a lot of that is contingent upon what we are able to do and not able to do. But the end result, it's like I still need to do that thing. I still need to you know build up the fan base. Um, what tools do I have at my disposal when we're allowed to be outside somewhat? Sure. Yeah. How um here's a here's another tangent question that that brought to my mind. I was talking to my mom about this the other day because you know I live in the quote unquote entertainment capital of the world. Um, so we a lot of our industry is entertainment based. That's, that's shows, that's dining, that's um, nightclubs, that's strip clubs, all that shit. So like ninety percent of our industry is on the back burner of what's going to be opening when. We're opening up. I mean, we went from essential businesses. Now we're to like restaurants and more stores. Entertainment seems like it's going to be like the last house on the block as far as what's going to be open. So how, how, how do you feel like as far as like comedy clubs, comedy shows, um, things like that? Like how how realistic is it, do you think, to see like full capacity shows anytime oh. soon? Oh man, I think we're a ways away from that. You know, I mean, the the whole idea of full capacity is probably going to change. You know, if not at least for a while, then from here on out. You know what I'm saying? Um, 
I remember, I remember the day, it was in March. It was what? March, goodness gracious. It was March 10th, 11th, 12th, probably March 12th, March 13th. Things started shutting down. And I just, I remember I lost three gigs in a day. And for that, and like, and then I was like, everything's going to go away. I just knew immediately. And I knew that comedy was going to go away because it was the easiest thing to go away. You know, it's a big deal when Hollywood shuts down. You know, a bar yeah. not being you know, when Hollywood just shuts down, they were they were doing movies during world wars, bro. You know, like they get it in. Um, so um I had a very clear understanding of this thing was gonna be gone. Uh, a lot of the festivals that I got into got postponed, and now the dates that they have given, um, I don't even believe are gonna happen. Um so I think that we are definitely we're gonna open, but we're gonna be a low priority. Um, people need to laugh. Clubs need to generate money. But I think the act of us being open, it's going to be a low priority in terms of how many open. It's going to be a low priority in the type of comics that you use. You're going to need killers that are willing and comfortable to come out and perform. Um, but as quickly as, as it went away, it could come back. But I don't think that we haven't even been told yet in the state of Philadelphia, like in the state of Pennsylvania, you still, it's, you shouldn't gather of more than 10 people. Gatherings of more than 10 people are prohibited. So, you know, a club like Helium or Punchline, when can they get to 50 people? Cause at that point it does have to like, it's like, okay, you can get 20 people in a room. Well, does it make sense to have those 20 people there? Unless you're also doing like a streaming service on top if you're having a live streaming show of the show while having somewhat of an audience there that could work but it has to be worth the club's while and if you bring in a national headliner who's a killer and well known and you're paying them thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars and you only got 50 people in the audience and everyone's nervous about shit about touching shit drinking shit wanting to know where it comes <laughs> is that person wearing glasses is this person coughing they're not going to make their money back, not even close. I mean, they're going to be operating at an aggressive loss. So uh, it, it's it's going to take some time to really figure out, man, because the club is going to have to really figure out what they can afford. You know, on the one hand, they're going to want national headliners that are killers. On the other hand, can they afford that right now? You know what I'm saying? Like, so it, it's going to be interesting. It's, it's going to be very, very interesting. I don't really know what it looks like. I just know that it's whatever it does look like should we get there is going to be vastly different or yeah and i mean i think that's um that's going to be par for the course for most entertainment based things like um one of my my sister lives in san diego and uh her and her husband they they do like uh parties like yacht parties you know like things like that they do hip-hop shows like they were actually uh going to be having an e40 perform down there in may i was supposed to go down there to chauffeur e40 around which i'm not a chauffeur but you know i was like fucking it's e40 i'm gonna do it yes, um, <laughs> but uh they shut that down and even like you said about like dates not being she's like tentatively september and i'm like yeah september it seems like it's far away but it's also kind of right around the corner um yep. so yeah man i think it is like you said we're gonna all be kind of like uh feeling it out and adjusting it um and this is usually the part of the show where i you know ask uh 
I'm like, hey, um, you know, you got any plugs, like anything you want to put out there, any show dates, any yada, yada, yada. But uh, we're, we're shut down. So if you have any shout outs or anybody you want to give thanks to, uh, this will be a good time for that, man. Okay. <laughs> give thanks to, well, of course, mama. That's number one. That's all. Yes. No, it's actually my mom's birthday is tomorrow. So she got she got her birthday present from me yesterday, but her birthday is on May the 24th. So big shout outs to moms for being the absolute best ever. Um, so that's that's off rip. Basically, you know, a lot of the guys that I a lot of guys and, and girls I came up with, uh, Sumac Dolgalkar, uh, Chris Cohen, um, you know, a lot of Jason Cox, um, Nikki Winkleman, um, Tom Plute, Amber Falter, uh, you know, the homie Daryl Charles, who has an excellent album out available on Bandcamp. It's called Black Gentrifier. You should want to check that out. It is fire. My homie David James, he has a, a, a new album out on Spotify called Kidnapping Season. It's also hilarious. You should definitely check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's about it. I mean, follow me on Instagram and follow me on Twitter at Satoyo One. That's S E T O I Y O and the number one. So I think that covers it. My man. Well, like I said again, brother, thank you for saving my ass. Um, and thank you for agreeing to this in general. Uh, I mean, like we go way back, but it's always like, again, like to say the premise of this is just to show people, you know, like the diversity. Cause I, I think, I mean, for people that haven't experienced hip hop as a culture who love it the way that we love it, they don't really realize the potential, the talent, the, the artistry and the dedication that we cultivate and look like a bunch of kids just doing shit until you see yeah. people who are world-class comics, um, world-class dancers, chefs right. own their own businesses. Like I got homeboys yeah. that I've came up with that are worldwide in multiple fields. Uh, so thank you for allowing to help me illustrate that for the, uh, the average consumer and outside person. Um, yeah, man, much love and respect, brother. I'm sure I'll be talking to you all today because your memes and your Instagram posts are, again, like you said, follow this nigga on Instagram. This shit is funny as a motherfucker, man. I swear to God. <laughs> Thank um, you for the shout out, brother. I genuinely enjoyed this, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, great. man. Much respect, and uh, I'll be talking to you soon, man. Peace. All right, brother.
breaking the mold, man, there ain't nothing like me. I don't trade with Mars, can't okay, no canines fight me. Rainbow in the dark, taking off at light speed. Across burning coals, doing a tangle with white feet. The life we living out, lawed by the system, cause freedom and love go harder than your religion. It ain't no telling what I'm capable of when I unplug from the matrix, straight to your jug. Be be beats like these be my favorite drug. Make me spit truth, here while you catching the buzz. Soon as I spread my wings, it's the butterfly effect. No tunnel vision as I summarize myself. I'm a Plutonian, I need space. Go deep straight to the dream state and create. By the release date, he'd be completely reshaped. Party people, can you relay? Hey, we can do it with the vibes. Live on a journey, we teaching them how to climb high. Yo, we can do it with the tribe. Strive for the unity, hoping that we can find that. Yeah, we can do it with the vibe. Providing the music you're using to get your minds right. Yo, we, we can do it with the tribe. Global community, solid, but we can find it. Move with the sound and I flip the beat in the basement. Bass hit a literal interval with the statements. Straight dip, levitating the spaceship. Glide with the glimmer and glow, flow the same shit. Peace, love, permeated and penetrate. Minds with the miracle, moonlight I illuminate. Truth of faith, whole faith, the truest way. Turning up the temperature, telling them how to do it, man. Slide through, doing it for the fam. Flipping grams of the lyrical dope, grow no damn slipping. Mass conscious, moving it with the sound waves. Blast rockets, doing it cause the sound pays. Smash off in the Subaru with the roof rack. Moving through, we choosing the tunes and cruising like who's that? You're galactic, rocking out with that GGO. Motherfucker for show, flowing and we go. Masterminds who maximize your natural highs Catch me live with galactic vibes We're rapping on Q-Wood and Earth Saver attitude Drip on 10 like it's my first day back at school Hey teacher, leave them kids alone Watch them blossom developing features of their own Seeded out the soil like I'd never be a clone Reaching to your soul with the frequency I'm on NorCal dweller with hella pure style fella You selling more cowbell? Well I forecast the weather looking Catastrophic to cats treating mice like inanimate objects Pandering nonsense, man I get all kid Planet rocket, don't stop it Expanding the bandwidth and bomb shit Y'all kids want this grand parts demolished Blows ice cold like Antarctic water Hey, we can do it with the vibes Live on the journey, we teaching them how to climb high Yo, we can do it with the tribe Strive for the unity, hoping that we can find that Yeah, we can do it with the vibe Providing the music you using to get your minds right Yo, we, we can do it with the tribe Global community solid when we combine it